I want you to uh, listen to this. I think you've heard this before if you've ever watched the Charlie Brown Christmas, which is one of my favorite Christmas movies. You might be able to picture Linus for the first time we see him put down his blanket and he says this. He reads this passage. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas story because of who the angels gave this message to. The angels appear in the sky, multitudes of them, and they, they can't contain themselves any longer. They've been waiting just as long as humans have for this. They've been, they've been waiting for this redemption plan, and they're so filled with joy that the first thing they do is just sing. They just can't contain themselves anymore. Last week, we took some time to look into the prophecies concerning the Messiah, our rescuer. We saw that all of those things were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. All of them. So this whole Christmas season is one that's anticipation. Our anticipation tends to get a little bit more impatient year by year. I think next year, they'll probably start putting Christmas decorations out in like August. We anticipate Christmas. It's like it's the major capstone to our annual calendar. For me, it's like family vacation and then Christmas. Those are the two big things I look forward to on the calendar. But this, this promise that God would send a Messiah and this promise that like ushered with it and gave people hope. It gave them hope. Now think about that word with me. I'm going to move this because I'm afraid I'm going to knock it over. Feeling like I might move around more today than usual. Anyway, this word hope. Here's the definition. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Think of all the things we say we hope for. You know, if someone says, uh, Eagles are going to the Super Bowl this year, we might respond with something like, I hope so. You know, a lot of my neighbors, as I talk to them about that, like, that's their response. They're like, I'm cautiously optimistic. This city has burned me since the 60s, you know? <laughs> I hope so. I hear my kids say things like, I hope it snows for Christmas this year. I hear my parents say things like, hope it doesn't snow for Christmas this year. 
Maybe you're thinking, I hope I get that one thing I asked for this year. I hope there's enough money to retire soon. I hope I get that promotion at work. Think of the way we use that word, hope. Now think of the things that we do because we have hope. Because, because uh, I'm thinking of this in a new light lately because my dad is going to be 65 in February. And he says 2018 is the year he's retired. Now I'll believe it when I see it. But that's what he says. He, he says he put his money where his mouth was because he went and bought a brand new truck. But I don't know what that has to do with retirement because I told him once you have a brand new truck, you don't have any money to pay for it. So if you retire. But I've been thinking about this retirement thing. And the reason my dad can say that 2018 is the year he's going to retire is because he has had a hope in him that someday he would be able to get to a point where he could enjoy retirement. And that hope drove him to invest in the years leading up to 65. And the hope was, the eager anticipation was, that someday he could look at an account and see that there was enough money in there to carry him through Years without having to work full time. So we invest because our hope drives us to the day we can retire and have money to live on later. We have a hope that drives us, and that hope it drives us to do something, drives us to have action. We have hope, and that hope drives us to respond in life to all sorts of things. We have hope that our, our kids will grow up and have an education, so we start to think through. Should we start funding that now? Should we start stocking money away for that now so that when the day comes, we have more put away and don't have to borrow as much? Our hope for their future changes some of the decisions we make today. If you're, you know, I I remember in college and I thought, like, I don't want to take this test. I don't want to pass. I don't care if I pass this class. But then you start to think, like, if I hand the resume in to a church and they want to hire me and they start looking at my college transcripts, which they're allowed to look at, I might be in trouble. So that hope that one day I'd be able to step into a full-time position drove my desire to at least pass these classes. Our hope drives us to do things. And the hope that the prophecies of the Old Testament gave to all of humanity, it caused the people around the birth of Jesus to respond in certain ways. They had a hope that was driven by these promises. These promises were made the whole way back in Genesis 3 like we looked at last week. And those those promises gave them hope. That hope drove a response. Promises made, promises given. And when there seemed to be enough evidence to support the fact that those promises had been fulfilled or those promises came true... It led to a response. Hope is what caused Mary to have wonder in her heart when the angel told her that she would be the one. She would be the one. And it says in Scripture that Mary pondered these things in her heart and said, such things are too wonderful for me. Do you know why that response came? Because she knew what the promise was. The promise was that there would be a Savior born of a virgin. And she knew this for years. She had heard this. And now an angel is standing in front of her and telling her, she's that girl. She's the one that's going to give birth to the Savior. 
And her hope that one day she could be rescued from the curse of sin is what drove her response to say, such things are too wonderful for me. Ragtag shepherds sitting on a hillside in the dark of night outside of town. They weren't allowed in town very often. They smelled bad. They were lower class citizens. They slept on the ground most nights. They would not even pen their sheep. They would sort of pen them in with their bodies. And so they knew that if, if anything was going to come in to attack, their flock would have to come through them. Because their whole livelihood depended on those sheep being taken care of. And sheep have no defense mechanism. So now they're sitting on this hillside outcasts to the rest of society and the angels from heaven open up heavens. The heavens open up filled with multitude of angels to tell them, of all people, to tell them that their rescuer was born in the city of David and all of a sudden things start to click. Wait a second, I've heard this before. And so they un uncannily leave their sheep and go into the city to see this thing that the angels have spoken to them about. Their hope that this could be the rescuer drove them to have a response. These three wise men, these three uh, wise magi from the east, they, they see the signs in the sky. They're watching for it. And they see it. And it drives a response to them because they say to themselves, wait a second, that star is different. And the scriptures tell us that there would be a, a new stellar object in the sky to point us to our Savior. That's got to be it. And so they set off on a two-year journey across land and desert and sea to find their king. Hope is what drove a response in them. You know, the bad news is we're born into sin. Adam and Eve chose sin over loving God. And from that time on, no human being has ever experienced a perfect existence on this earth. They're the only two that ever got to see it. Unless the Lord comes back today to redeem this planet, they're the only two that will see it in this room We'll be able to stand in glory. We'll be able to see Jesus face to face. But we have never gotten to experience the world that they, they got to experience. So when you hear that, you were born into sin. You were born into sin. That's what that means. That's one of those statements that we use that's, that's hard to wrap our heads around. It's one that's not fun to talk about, that we're born into sin. What that means is, if you're not Adam and Eve, created by the breath of God and the hands of God in the Garden of Eden, you have not experienced a perfect, non-fallen existence hand-in-hand -hand with your Creator. You have not experienced that. From those two on, everyone was born into sin because this world hadn't experienced sin as a planet until they chose it. So we are born into sin. That's the existence we have. And those promises that were made back in Genesis of hope, of a, of a redemption, of a rescue, those are for us too. So what they're watching for is Jesus. 
See, we're, well, we're fallen beings. We're, we should be eagerly anticipating a rescue also because we need it desperately. The story of Christmas is a story of hope because we know in our hearts that we need rescue. We can try to get better and better educations. We can try to get smarter and smarter. And it's amazing to me the things our brains can hold. The things we can continually learn. The expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It doesn't really match up with the fact that we've seen people who are at the twilight years of their lives learn new things. Our brains continue to develop. Now, we live in a fallen world, so we know that there are people who unfortunately do get a disease or get a sickness and their brain does stop developing. It goes to the backwards. But in a typical situation, our, our brains are continually able to absorb and take in information. We're all wired to process that information differently. So we can get better educations and we can get smarter and smarter. Our brains can continue to fire all these neurons to, to have information locked into our long-term and short-term memories, things that we've seen that we remember. We can read books that make us more intelligent because we're able to process the world around us better. We're able to figure things out. We can understand the elemental process and explain to you how certain things are developed by by chemistry. We can have people stand in front of us. We pay money for that. We pay money for people who are supposedly smarter than us to teach us what they know. We buy books to learn from people who supposedly know more than we know. Why? Because we're lifelong learners. We want to learn. But no matter how smart we get, we couldn't figure out the problems of the universe on our own. We still come up empty. We try to figure out how the earth came into existence. And there are some really super intelligent people that have lived before and are living now who can make a very compelling argument for how the world came into existence because they have spent their entire lives studying it and they still get to a point where they have to look at you and say, we don't know about that. That we're not sure of. That we don't know. And faith in God is what gives us the answer to say, I, I know. I know. We create legislation. We create new laws. We think that we can end the sin problem if we can just keep each other in line. Forms of government have sprouted up all over the world in different forms. We're Americans, so we believe ours is the best. That's why we always try to give it to somebody else. But there are some that believe that if they can just lord over their people, listen, in a perfect system, we're going to provide you as a government with everything you need. Because then if we can do that, if we can control everything about your existence, then we can control whether you're breaking the law or not. It hasn't worked yet. We can come up with legislation that says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to get people to do the right thing. We have an alcohol problem in the United States, so we're going to start prohibition. Prohibition is what put the mafia on the map. 
Because they found a way to get that stuff in people's hands. Because you know what we wanted when we told when we were told we couldn't have it? Alcohol. And if the refer if the if, if the uh, if why did I blank it on the word? What was it called? Prohibition. Prohibition. Almost said reformation. No, it wasn't right. <laughs> if prohibition taught us anything, it's that you can't legislate morality. And we could try. We've tried for years. And we always come up empty on our own. You see, the story of Christmas is the story of the salve that gets us past ourselves. It gets us past the point where we, we think we can come up with the solution on our own. The story of Christmas is the story of humility and the story of our rescuer coming down to earth. Let me read to you what, what Paul Tripp says in this devotional. You see, the inescapable condition of sin infects every single human being and has scarred every aspect of the cosmos which cry out for one thing and one thing only, divine intervention. The only solution was a Savior, and the only suitable Savior with the wisdom, power, and righteousness to accomplish the task would be God himself. The one denied would come to rescue his deniers. The one rejected would move to save his rejectors. The one who had been rebelled against countless times, would come to redeem the rebels. The one who had been replaced in people's hearts with an endless catalog of idols would invade the world he had made and rescue people from themselves. He would not come to set up an earthly kingdom and enforce his rule on the unwilling populace. He would not come to judge and condemn. He would not come demanding the service that was his rightful due. No, he came to serve, to suffer, and to die, so that his kingdom would reign in the hearts of people. He came to seek and to save. He came to suffer and forgive. He came to rescue and restore. He came to call, draw, and love those who without his grace would continue to live for themselves. He came, and because he did, there is hope that sinners can be redeemed and that the world can be renewed it really is true. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. Hope is a name, and his name is Jesus. You know, before Jesus went to the cross, which is why we can celebrate Christmas, because without this baby being born, we don't have someone that, was, that lived a sinless life to die on a cross. He spent some time talking to his disciples about how he is the embodiment of hope. And I think it's important that we look at that. So open your Bibles with me to John 14. If you're using the one in front of you, it's page 622. John 14. He's teaching his disciples. This is before he dies on the cross. He has said things numerous times to them. He's trying to get them to understand what he's about to do. But he's also teaching us thousands of years later that he is something. He is hope. He is the embodiment of it. He's also saying that he has the authority to be who he is. So listen to what he says here in John 14, starting at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So there are three things, I think, that stand out here, that that Jesus is teaching his disciples, and because we have this record in front of us, he's teaching us. And the first thing that I think we need to look at is that Jesus is the way back to God. Jesus is the way back to God. If you remember back at the garden, sin separated us from God. And and I've used the analogy before. You've probably seen it other places where you have God on this side and a huge chasm in between and then us on the other side. And there's no way to bridge that gap. So all of humanity has been trying to figure out on our own vices how to get ourselves back in right relationship with God. All other religions depend on the work you do to get you there. It's like your good works build you a bridge across that chasm. And if you screw up just once, all the braces underneath your bridge, they fall down, and you've got to scrape your way back to the side and start over again. But under the gospel, that's not how it works. Under the gospel, we understand we couldn't build a bridge. There was nothing we could do on our own to get us back to that except for wait. That's what humanity was doing at this point in time. They were waiting for their Savior. And Jesus comes on the scene and he lives a sinless life. And he dies the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice on the cross. And his cross gets slammed right down into that chasm. And we walk across the cross, through the cross, to get over to the other side to be with God. We have communion with God because of Jesus Jesus is the way to God. Sin separated us. We needed someone to save us. So the age-old question was always, how does this chasm get crossed? And Jesus came as the only possible answer to that question. He lived a perfect life, and most importantly, he died an acceptable to his father's death. And by doing that, he returned things to the way things were meant to be. It didn't mean that it was like that moment whenever uh, 
Marty McFly gets his mom to kiss his dad at the dance, right? The Paradise Under the Sea dance. And all of a sudden the picture comes back and everything starts to go the way it was supposed to, right? That's not how it worked. It's not like Jesus came and died and rose again and all of a sudden the world got perfect and, and there was no more sin. That's not how it worked this time. You know, because we got the world and what I, what I believe what my theology tells me is that the reason the world didn't go back to a perfect existence is because we needed to learn that the only things we needed of bounty in this world didn't come from this world. They came from its creator. So we still live in a broken world. We still live in a world where there is a very true, very real bridge between the chasm between man and God. And our job is to get as many people with us to understand that grace and cross through that cross. Come through and experience the grace of God and the redemption that we all long for in our souls. So Jesus is the way to God. That's what he's trying to get them to see. The second thing that he tells them is that he is the truth from God. He didn't just communicate God's truth. He embodied it. Jesus was the truth. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he says. Later on in scriptures it tells us that we have one mediator between God and man, man, Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he says to Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Philip hears God's, and here's what I think is interesting. Philip's in the room whenever Jesus answers Thomas' question. So Thomas says, uh, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. How can you know the way? I am the way. I am. And I am the truth, and I am the life. These three things that your soul is longing for in life, you can find in me, and only find in me. Your way to eternal rest, your way to redemption, me. The truth that your heart and soul so longs to hear in this world. Something true, something, something that has full integrity, something that's not deceiving you at any, at any level. Jesus says, me, that's me. And life, I just want to find life. I want, I want life to feel abundant. I want to feel like it has purpose. I want to feel like it has meaning. I want to feel like it has intentionality behind it. And Jesus again says, me, you can find those things in me. The three things, if you strip it all down, that your soul's longing for, you can find in me. And only find in me. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's what he's telling me. He's, okay, maybe you didn't completely understand this up to this point, guys. But if you are spending time with me, you are spending time with the Father. And it's almost like he looks at the disciples and says, we're all on the same page, right? You guys get that, right? And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Now, yeah, we get that. Show us the Father. That sounds cool. Show me that. That'll be enough for me. And Jesus looks and says, have, you been, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know me, Philip? Again, whoever has seen me 
has seen the Father. It's almost like Jesus is like, okay, let me see. Let me try one more time. Okay, guys, listen. Listen. Shh. Shh. Stop talking. If you have seen me, got that set, follow me. Say it out, say it out. If you have seen me, okay, good. You have seen the Father. We're on the same page? And I feel like Jesus is like, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to have to say it again. Sure enough, we see him say things along those lines multiple times, right? Jesus is the truth from God. I never really thought about that before, but when, when he quotes this again, he's quoting it to Pilate. Pilate looks at him and says, Do you not know that I have the authority to put you to death? It's almost like this big power play, right? The only way you walk away from this, pal, is if I let you walk away. So I'm asking you again, if you don't answer me, you know where this is going. And Jesus looks, looks at him. And he says, this is, this is one of the greatest moments. I wish I could have been there to see it. Because Jesus looks at the governor in the eyes and he says, you would have no authority at all if, it wasn't allowed, if you weren't allowed to have it by my father. And then, he says, so it's, you can tell Pilate's sort of taken aback by this. And he says, are you the Christ, the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Pilate's famous question, right? What is truth? At that point in Roman history, philosophers were all the rage, and that stayed true of their culture for a long time. As they philosophized about life and tried to figure out the biggest questions in life, the one thing that always escaped them was truth. And Jesus embodies truth. And I started to think through, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? And what I kept coming back to is, in a perfect existence, they heard from God. They saw God. They talked with God. They walked with Him. And everything changed when they got deceived. And from that moment on, they had to second guess and question everything. Everything. So the only thing, if you strip it back far enough, the only thing that has ever been true is God. Everything else has been used to deceive us by Satan. Everything else has been dangled in front of us as something good to distract us from God. But the only thing true, our true north, the only thing that we can really get focused and centered back in on is God. And Jesus embodies that. And then the third thing that he's trying to teach them and us through this passage is he is life. Jesus is life. Now listen to what Paul says about this in Ephesians Paul's reminding about grace through faith. Listen to this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
I don't know if I've ever seen someone with those three verses tattooed on their body. I don't know if those are ones we want to print on a nice piece of canvas and hang on our dining room walls. You were dead in your trespasses and sins because at the end of verse 3, there is no hope afforded to us if we just read those three verses. If you picked up your Bible and the only three verses you ever read were these ones, you would walk away depressed. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and once you, in the way you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, there are some scholars that believe Paul is just a grumpy old man, and this is, this is one of the passages that they use to support that claim. I think it's a, it's a, it's a bad claim. I mean, it doesn't, it's not substantiated, really, but this is one of the passages they use to say that. It's almost like you're sitting and listening to your conspiracy theorist uncle that only shows up at Christmas and tells you that we never landed on the moon. He's always angry about something. That's the kind of tone that can come out of this, right? But that's what Paul's saying is this is what we were. This is what we were. We were dead. Period. Our sins gave us death. That's what we were. We were dead. And if you want someone who is dead to be alive again, they need new life breathed into them. They need life back. That's what this does, right? This is a defibrillator. Someone want to come up and try it? <laughs> no? Okay. I'm not going to open it because I'm afraid I'll do something wrong and, and I'll go flying through the back window here. <laughs> this is how they portray in movies. This is a defibrillator. What is the purpose of this? That's right, it whispers. Good job. Give you heart. Yeah, get your heart back in rhythm, right? If your heart stops... You, if your heart stops, you are, for all intents and purposes, what? Dead, right? You need something to jolt your life back. The old school method of CPR, which I don't think they even encourage anymore, is the mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. I think now they've changed it to just chest compressions until you can get an EMT on site. But you needed to give someone your breath. You needed to get something into their lungs. You needed to get the heart going again. You needed to do artificial pumps. And then you would do the defibrillator to get the rhythms of the heart back. It would shock the body back. And there are stories that people can tell you about how they were excuse me, pronounced dead on the scene of a car accident or something. And that defibrillator is what brought them back. You see, but the, 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 the end for that person is the same as the end that it would have been in that moment. It's just extended a little longer. We will all die a physical death. Unless the Lord comes back and redeems his church today, which would be awesome. But it's looking like we're probably going to die. So we should probably plan that way. So we have this minuscule amount of time in the scope of eternity to do the work of God. And the only way that we can get life breathed into us, because we are dead, we are dead in our sins. 
The only way that we can come back to life is for something that is more powerful than us to breathe life into us and give us a sustaining wind, a sustaining breath. A heart that beats for something bigger than ourselves because when our heart beats for ourselves, we still die. The ultimate result of sin is death. You can't change the math. Your good works don't outweigh your bad. That's not how it works. The ultimate end to sin is death. A life without Jesus ends in death. Period. Period. There's no good works. There's no earning it. There's no good church attendance. There's no morality compass that you can follow. A life without Jesus, no matter how kind and sweet and nice you are, ends in death. Period. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. But... The bad news is so minuscule in the scope of how good the good news is that it, it just needs brushed over. Because as bad as that sounds, the good news is so good. It's so good that it makes this feel so small. You die without Jesus. Period. And that sounds really bad in and of itself. But when you understand and we understand and grapple with the good news that he is hope, he embodies it, he provides us with hope that he's going to redeem this world, that he has died to redeem us. It makes the bad news feel so minuscule. It's like someone told me that you can't have a piece of penny candy. Do they even make that anymore? It's probably Tootsie Rolls. So the good news is so, so far eclipsing over the bad news that we tend to lose sight of it once we have the good news. I used to really fear death when I was a kid. I used to, I used to, the thought of eternity freaked me out because this picture in my head was that I was going to end up in, in a spot for all eternity and I was going to have to sit in an uncomfortable church pew but wear a white robe and I would just sing all the time. That's just what heaven was going to be, just singing. I was just going to sing. And anytime the old ladies had taught me in Sunday school what heaven was going to be like, it's just going to be a whole bunch of people together singing. And I just thought like that, I get bored upstairs with my parents. How am I not going to get bored in heaven? So death kind of freaked me out as a kid. It was kind of scary to me. And it's because I didn't have a complete picture of the good news. And so that bad news still felt really bad. That bad, the weight of it still felt pretty heavy. But when you have a complete picture of the good news, I want you to hear this. Listen to how Paul ends this passage. Now remember what he said in those first three verses. Now listen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's good news. That's good news. 
You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. That is not you anymore. That is the past. That is behind you. That is gone. And the only way that you can move forward in hope, the only way you can move forward in grace, the only way you can move forward and do anything good for the kingdom is because Jesus came at Christmas. He provided hope. He embodied it. He was it. And he's coming back again. Christmas is this beautiful season where we get the anticipation of remembering what he came to do on our behalf. What he came to fix. Something that humanity had broken and humanity couldn't fix. It's like that thing you broke as a kid. And you tried to fix it so that dad didn't find out that you broke it. But then eventually you did have to take it back to him and say... I broke this. You had to take it to someone other than yourself. And I think some of us in this room are probably still trying to fix that brokenness on our own. We're probably still trying to fix it. And we think if we hold ourselves up long enough and read a few more books and just check a few more resources out, then we will be able to figure this thing out. I'll be able to fix it. I'll be able to fix this brokenness that I feel. Eventually you have to crumble up the broken pieces, gather them all up, all the broken pieces that you got to the point where you realize you couldn't fix, and you got to take them to your dad, and you got to let him fix it. You got to take them to Jesus, and you got to let him fix it. And the fix is eternal life. And him in that moment, he doesn't get mad at you, he doesn't yell at you, he doesn't scream at you, he scoops you up, and he says, Let me fix it. I've been waiting. So Jesus offers us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Redemption, restoration, and hope through his beautiful and powerful name. So in the name of Jesus, we gather God. We come before you with open hands and open hearts. Realizing that no matter how bad we think we've screwed up, you have already fixed it. You just need to receive that grace. You are a good, good father. You have a beautiful name. You have a powerful name. The name of Jesus. So as we anticipate Christmas, as we feel that hope build up in us, Eagerly anticipating. Eagerly anticipating something to come. Something that we know is true. May all of these things remind us that you are a good, beautiful, and powerful God. May we be obedient to the life you've called us to.